Hello, and welcome to Activating Sustainability, the Anthesis podcast. We hope you, your loved ones, and teams are all settling into some kind of nice fall routine. I'm really excited today to be joined by Marta La Cruz Sobre, Education Development Director for Anthesis out of Spain. She has a fascinating background and deep passion for environmental activism and education, and I'm really looking forward to digging into a number of topics with her today. Marta, welcome, and thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Chris, for inviting me. Absolutely. So maybe to start us off, could you give us a little bit of kind of the history and some context around environmental education? Yeah, yeah, sure. Environmental education has been there for over 40 years. Let's say it started with activism and environmental education altogether with communication. And so we could say that the, those kids from those two generations are now our policymakers, our decision makers in public and private life. And they are also the mothers and fathers. And so also in my case, I'm very much a, a pupil of them. So I very much remember my first outdoors activities. So let's put it in other words, like Greta Thunberg did not show up out of the blue. Yeah, it's such a fascinating way to think about that. And just that time space of that is really incredible. And have you seen it evolve? Say, I know you've been involved for the last 16, 20 years or so. You know, have you seen it evolve over that time? Yes, we have seen it evolving from methods and also in content. The first environmental education was very much related to uh, natural education, let's say recognizing the species and the landscape and so on. Then it shifted into how we deal with urban cycles and how we manage to avoid pollution and so on. And now it's very much integrated in all methodology in education. That, that is to say, the key approaches of uh, environmental education is that it has to be learner-centered, it has to be action-oriented, and it has to be transformative. So it has to be very relevant to the person you are trying to educate than a um, masterclass, let's say. Yeah? So it's shifted in methods and, and in content also very much during these years. You know, do you see variances or in approaches or interests of, say, kids of different age groups? So whether they're elementary school or high school? Uh, yes, we do see some different interests also on the, on the way they are learning. But I would like to highlight that environmental education is not to do only with kids, but also to adult people. It also has shifted from seeing the education at schools into community programs and uh, interage activities and so on. So we should keep in mind that we are all learners, so lifelong learning is important. And also another key issue in environmental education is the teacher teaching, let's say. I think in the world there are over 70 million teachers, so they also have to be trained into these methodologies and the context if we want a real change in the world in, in sustainability. Those uh, million teachers should be our allies but also it has to do with empowering citizens and empowering people, whatever their age is and whatever they are learning or working in. 
Yeah, those are great points. And maybe could you unpack the community citizen education portion of that a little bit? Like, what does that look like? To, to have a better idea, I can show you something that happened this summer in Barcelona. In Barcelona, beach is a turtle nested and laid uh, 50x. So it was a great chance for us who are conducting a program there, the beach center in Barcelona, to build a network of volunteer, over 1,000 people who were there watching for the nests and learning about the turtles and monitoring them and so on. So this case, it has to do very much with emotion and learning and, and citizen science. And through this kind of cases is how you engage community in a common goal, which from there can evolve into some other projects, right? So you have to be very flexible and take the chance of what is happening right now, uh, not just general issues or general contents, but taking advantage of what happens. So maybe building off of that kind of taking advantage of circumstances, you know, how do you view the current COVID crisis and how do you see that working into some of your lesson planning or the opportunities or challenges at the moment? Yeah, of course, COVID has been a very abrupt situation because of the lock, uh, lockdown of the schools and they were not ready for a lockdown under these circumstances. It has accelerated the digitalization of the of teaching, so it has been a, an opportunity of that. But of course, we have to take into account that there is a digital divide that is not always the technology is available and even the personal skills of teachers and pupils are not uh, always ready for, for that. But on the other side, there are big opportunities like youngsters, they socialize and they consume digital contents. So for them is a very handy way of learning. And one of the most interesting things for me is that it can be very self-directed learning. So the students can explore their own learning processes. And I think that that is very much to do with the new skills that have to evolve. I think it's fascinating because we're all kind of challenged in this space of how do we communicate in this new form, right? So you think about kids trying to learn on remotely teachers trying to think about how do they communicate lessons plans. You, I know have talked about like, how do you engage people on that kind of emotional level through technology? You know, and we think about this from a business perspective where you have those conversations around the water cooler or in the hallway remotely. Are there lessons you've learned in terms of what you can and can't do well and ways that you've adapted to that? Yeah, for me, there is a big opportunity in that, and that is that we should be able to distinguish what makes sense in person and what makes sense through digital learning. For instance, in a digital wall or remote wall, you cannot smell the, the, the smells or hear the sounds or interact more general content or have an impression of art, and, and that is something you have to do in the place. But on the other hand, what it allows us is that most of the content that we provide to those children can be digital. So these blended activities between what is digital and what really makes sense in place 
I think it's a very good opportunity that we have to reflect on it. That's great. Yeah. And really interesting to think about, like, like you said, what makes sense for the different tools that we have? And I think that's going to be an exciting outcome of this period is people thinking about when does it make sense to work remotely and when does it make sense to be together in a physical space and what does make the most sense within that. Maybe one of the things that I know we had talked about previously is the idea of like power of games and gamification. And, you know, I'd be curious to hear how you use that in some of your, your work at the moment. Mm -hmm. For me, a good driver is to learn through emotion. So when you learn something and it connects to your emotions, whatever they might be, even frustration, you can go one step ahead and the learning is more settled, yeah? So thinking of that and also learning of what science have researched on how we learn and how are these processes, I think a very powerful tool is through gamification processes where you have fun and you learn also, but you don't learn in an abstract world. You learn through the serious game how to interact with the reality. Let's say you don't play for the game itself, but you play and this is changing reality. And through this gamification process, because you can have like a competition and collaborative manners to a common goal, that is fun, that you learn and you have the emotions are all mixed uh, there together. So there are like different tools to achieve that. And this can be delivered in digital way, but also through escape boxes or other kind of in-person uh, uh, games. But uh, I, I very much think emotion should be relevant knowledge. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Do you have an example or a simple example of what that looks like in practice, such as you mentioned the escape box or other examples of gamification? Yes, Chris, we have produced different boxes because it is a very useful tool. Youngsters are familiar to them, so they know already the methodology. You can adjust the time very well because it's counter time, so they, they know already what, what their aim is. And another advantage is that you mix people together in a group and they compete one against the other. But because they are mixed and we all have different skills, you can have a good variation uh, of person who work collaboratively and each one has a, a role to play. Because what happens uh, in some activities is that you leave behind some students, but here everyone has a role to play. So it has a, a variety of advantages having an activity like an escape box. Yeah, no, that's great. And I mean, you mentioned earlier, right? That idea of, I keep thinking about students in this context, but then also think about as adults, right? We need to do a better job of playing and taking advantage of these games to try to embed that knowledge, like you said. Yeah, we did one for energy and our client used the skatebox we made for the students for team building between the directors of the company. So it's very versatile. We are producing one for the Basque country on climate change that we also are thanking it for general citizenship and for scholars. So it's a methodology you can use for all ages, let's say. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so Mara, what I'd love to hear a little bit about is how you see 
say the content of the education changing? What are some of the subjects that you see coming up and how have those evolved or how are you approaching some of those? Well, we have a framework that is the learning objectives of the UNESCO for the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals. That is a book published in, in 2017. And there you have very much the content of how to address the, the 17 goals in terms of taking them into the schools and into learning activities. I would like to highlight there that education is one of the key goals of the SDGs. UNESCO themselves, they consider education as a driver for the achievement of the 17 SDGs. So that, that is the general framework. But as I was telling you, we have to be aware of what is new and what is relevant at the moment. And for me, the COVID crisis and what it has provoked is a major opportunity because children have lived them in first person uh, to take that also into the normal, regular activities we once designed. For instance, we had pristine air and not having cars moving around. So that that is a major uh, opportunity for making children reflect on how could cities be if we reduced the private transportation, for instance. Or we all could notice how the noise reduction made us aware of the birds around us in the city and the biodiversity that was already there. So those are, because they have seen by themselves, they are big opportunities to reflect on the activities. I think that's great because as you said before, I mean, education is so emotional, right? And I think People within the sustainability space are so passionate about the topic that it sometimes it's hard for us to think about, like, how do others not see it the same way? And to try to really think about how do we capture some of these moments? I know that's been a big discussion here in North America with the wildfires that we're experiencing at the moment. For those in the community, there's that direct connection between this is the manifestation of climate change that we've been talking about for decades. When you look at that and think about the COVID, it's fascinating to think about how we can capture those moments as those examples and tie in that emotion. So great to hear. So I know when we spoke previously, you had mentioned a number of different areas that you look at from a content perspective, like biodiversity and climate shelters and responsible consumption. Do you want to just speak to those a little bit in terms of how, how those look? Yeah, sure. We are now addressing a brand new project on schools as a climate refuge. Uh, that is an intervention on schools to regreening them and applying sustainable solutions from an architectural point of view. But from there, we are conducting a project for the scholars at school and that uh, is involving also the community. So it's a project that will enable us to work differently the climate change issue, but also with whom we will work from this community perspective. So I'm thrilled about this brand new project because it's moving forward from school into the community. And for biodiversity, of course, it's linked also to this project, but there are many others because as you very well know, we are facing the sixth extinction and also regreening, uh, naturalizing the schools can be a powerful excuse also to teach children on that. Well, and I imagine parents too, right? 
Yeah, yeah. Because from there, what we try is to address solutions and easy recipes that you can take from school into your household and to involve parents and community from there. For instance, there is a small town nearby Barcelona where we teach children on the importance of honeybees and wildering the gardens and it, it is important for that so from that small center what we try is to spread it into the city through children and into their households yeah fascinating and you had mentioned responsible consumption i'm just curious how do you approach that with kids and same thing how does that cascade through the ages Responsible consumption is a very big issue and it's also something that we should take advantage also from the COVID crisis because e-commerce has increased that much that we should think as consumers as and as citizens how is the way we consume. If we think first of all if we need that item, how we buy it, to whom we buy it, how is it is produced and how we will dispose it. So we are trying to focus on first thing of the chain that is to rethink. Do you really need that? Can you produce it by yourself? Are you going to, to share it with others? And so on. And this is a counter effect of the COVID that I think also we should take that into our activities even more than we used to do before. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and Marta, every time we get a chance to connect, I love our conversations because as somebody in the sustainability space, we were really passionate about and trying to think about like how do we engage our peers and others within the space and on these topics. And it's always great to connect with you and others in the education space that just bring that professionalism and that approach to it. And with that, I'd love to hear your thoughts on your view as, as an environmental educator, as you think about the decisive decade and where we go from here. Yeah, well, when you think on your own of these climate issues and all the challenges that we have, maybe on your personal point of view, you are not very optimistic about that. But as uh, environmental educators, we have to be optimistic. There is no plan B for that. Also, education is a long-term effort, but on the other side, is one of the most lasting experiences, if you do it right. James Hegman, who won the Nobel Prize just for highlighting investment you can do is to invest in education because this has a return on society more than some other topics, especially when you address early childhood care and education phases and from zero to three years old. And so, so having mind that this long-term effort, we should also take into consideration that one billion world's population is between 15 and 24. So in very few years, they are the future decision makers and consumers. And also these youngsters, they are the best informed, active and interconnected digital citizens in the world. So we have to think again on how we educate, in what kind of methodologies, what are their interests, and what will they need to address those issues. Yeah, I, I always love in our conversations when I bring up the decisive decade, you talk about how short a time period that is, which I think is always a great, great kind of framework for us to keep in mind and to think ahead. And I love that comment about that need to be optimistic, you know, given the lack of a plan B. So, Marta. Thank you so much for, for your time and the insight today. This was really great. Really appreciated the discussion and the perspective. 
It was my pleasure, Chris. Great. Well, and thank you all very much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you have any thoughts or comments or feedback on today's episode, we'd love to hear it. Please reach out to Marta and myself at marta.lacruz or chris.peterson, both at anthesisgroup.com. We hope you're all staying safe and keeping well. Thanks again. Take care.